Want exclusive content and a say on Emerging Cricket's direction? Support us on Patreon. From as little as $2 a month, you'll be helping us grow the game outside its traditional centres. To sign up, log on to Patreon. That's patreon.com slash Emerging Cricket. Coming up, we discuss Tim's appointment in Vanuatu, eight-year bans for two ex-UAE internationals, the fate of the ICC CEO, and more. Stick around. Welcome again to another Emerging Cricket Podcast across the usual listening spots. I'm Daniel Bezik and with me are the rest of the podcast crew. First, Copernicus Cricket on Twitter. Nick Skinner. Nick, how are you? I'm well. I'm happy to be back with the two of you and uh, looking forward to seeing you guys on the weekend as well. Ah, yes. We've organized a bit of an EC catch-up. A few of the others, Nishad and Rod Lyle, will be with us as well. Looking forward to that. To celebrate the special news, uh, the other mainstay of the Emerging Cricket Podcast, we could almost class him as a special guest this week. We'll save the usual welcome, but hello, soon-to-be Vanuatu Cricket Association CEO, Tim Cutler. Thank you. Daniel, it is good to be here with both of you, and yes, that will be fun, although if this ear infection keeps going the way it is, I'm not sure flying will be the funnest, but, you know, let's be happy that we're able to fly, and it will actually be the first time all five of us are in the same room, so looking forward to it. The most amazing thing was not you being appointed, is you just saying the word funnest in a sentence. This is the most un-Tim Cutler thing I think I've ever heard, but we'll go past that. Uh, <laughs> Tim's a fun guy, Bez. What are you talking about? He's a fun guy. Let's talk about your appointment, Tim. I mean, <laughs> one of the most fun places in the world has to be Vanuatu, but you go there after the platform that's been laid down by a number of key people in the area. Uh, when the job posting came up, you were chomping at the bit to get it. What's what's the feeling now that you've been appointed? What were the feelings that you, that you had when you when you found out the news? I don't even feel like I need to answer that. I think you should just write all my press releases for me, Daniel, about uh, how excited I am, most excited person in the world. But look, when I had heard that Shane um, was heading to the Netherlands, and of course his wife, Machella, is from. The Netherlands so it all, it all makes a lot of sense and great for her to be able to get back um, and around her friends. I thought, oh, I, I wonder what's, uh, what's going to happen there because it laid such a great base, you know, for a guy who, by his own admission as a, as a, as a cricketer and a coach, to go there and to, to rise up the ranks there and all the good work that he's done to, to be CEO for the last well, two and a bit years. And, you know, I think what we've seen on our screen speaks for itself, you know, the way that they were able to pivot in the middle of COVID so we could see some live sport and, well, project Vanuatu cricket to the world. But it's, I think it's behind that that's really what excites me more. You know, the fact that almost 10% of the population of 300,000 within Vanuatu are already playing cricket during the year the majority of those are kids going through grassroots programs but seeing some of those programs and how important they are in the the local community around education around gender-based violence and generally female empowerment you know these are the things that i know that will get us excited emerging cricket uh, about how cricket can make such a positive impact in the community so that is something that really excites me to be well to be getting involved with but um, I think it speaks volumes for Shane that he went from being coach and high performance manager to CEO and he leaves and he's basically replaced by two people with Jeremy Bray currently in quarantine in I've got to say it's going to be one of the most 
hideous looking hotels and the history of the world looking out on this <laughs> blue lagoon in Port Vila. You know, very disciplined in there. He told me, you know, there was only six beers in the room the entire time and there were still two left. He's doing a lot better than I than I would be. But he's through his day, you know, talking to the to the, the players on, on Zoom, doing his own fitness work. I'm like, maybe you should leave those fitness plans behind because there's a COVID weighty man going to be coming in behind you, um, <laughs> hopefully next month. But like I said, it speaks volumes that, you know, there was that much that Shane was covering about having both Jeremy, you know, whose pedigree speaks for itself, you know, Aussie under-19s, World Cup century, coaching in Ireland, men's and women's, and then to coach in Denmark for the last six or seven years, to be able to work alongside him. And for me to to work on all the potential there around expanding those programs, finding long-term commercial partners, and and who knows, leveraging some of those, some of that great work already on the likes of the T10 Blast. I was going to say T10 Blitz there. It's like, no, it's the (laughs) T10 Blast. Freudian cutler slip. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, exactly. But I just think it's a great opportunity to, to really get in there and, and make a difference and just start from such a, a great base. You know, Mark Stafford's been president. You now he's, of course, he's on the chief executives committee now of the ICC. So that shows how he's held within uh, associate cricket itself, but president for 30 years and to build it from where it was, well, you know, no organised programs and local development as it is, to now having almost 30,000 people playing. There's there's so much potential still. You know, it's apparently a football, a soccer nation, but, um, you know, I guess, uh, I guess we'll just have to change that. Much prefer it to be a cricket nation. Um, what Tim, you've spoken to Jeremy Bray, and I, I've met him briefly at a World Cricket League tournament. I think he's a, an impressive guy, you know, no-nonsense approach to cricket, and, and I liked that about him. Have you guys got any plans so far, or have you, you know, you've been putting your heads together to think about where to go next with the VCA? Very early days, Nicholas. Thank you for putting me on the spot. I feel like I'm, I'm in another another interview. <laughs> um, well, you are the special guest of this show. <laughs> he's doing his best from quarantine, and as I am... Uh, having not officially started trying to sort of ease my way in so when I land um, which will hopefully be the middle of next month and then two weeks in in quarantine etc but I think there is just so much potential from a let's look at from a talent point of view within the, the elite playing groups that it's just gonna, just a lot of simple things being done the right way and a lot more consistency in those programs including in uh, local sort of high performance cricket but also the pathways of keeping more talented kids in the game longer I think is going to be really important while that's not going to be on on Jeremy's on his mind or at least his responsibility to keep those kids coming through but I think that's something that I can do around him but I, I think like South Pacific, but any sort of developing nations, it's having programs that, that fit in with people's lives as well. You know, we got the, the men's squad are contracted and they are contracted as players and also development officers. So, you know, it's already creating jobs for, for that many people. You know, there are 40 employees of the VCA, which raises everyone's eyebrows when I tell them, because I think for those who are not aware of, let's call it our world, I think they just expect I'm going to be landing there and be sitting in the corner screaming cricket, you know, and hoping people start to play. But it's like, this is a going concern that touches the lives of dozens of families and um but then touches the lives of so many more um i think it's just gonna it's bringing that consistency in like i think we've seen the talent there in the men's team especially but a bit like thinking of sort of hong kong talent that's sort of that hot and cold you know (laughs) Uh, we know that Vanuatu can be bowled out for 60 but then they can bowl the other team out for 50 (laughs) (laughs) um so we've talked about it all the time but you don't have to go far to find 
good models for success in the uh, the women's game. Not too far across the water to Thailand, and I'm not necessarily saying that that will be the plan to be copying, but what I mean, there are so many good things happening around the associate world that it's not a matter of reinventing the wheel. But you'd be silly not to say that that, let's call it the golden ticket out of East Asia Pacific into the next global qualifier is is not a huge focus because, you know, as we know, Papua New Guinea being in the World Cup, they get an automatic ticket to at least the next qualifier. That's if they don't make the Super 12, meaning that they go through to the next World Cup. So that means that there's an extra place coming in from East Asia Pacific. So between Vanuatu, Japan, the Philippines, Samoa, Fiji, one of those two will, will make a global qualifier uh, for the first time in, in, in men's C20 cricket. So that, in terms of short-term goals, that, that is big, but also staying up in the challenge leagues too, knowing how important that is from exposure, consistent, contextual cricket, and also the funding that comes with it. So, you know, like in a lot of these pl- uh, places in the South Pacific, especially very hard to get things in and out of or expensive more expensive than just ordering something if you're in in Asia or, or, or Europe, but that's only compounded at the moment with COVID. So trying to be very innovative in the ways of getting equipment there or using the best out of the facilities that we have. But I was talking to Jeremy the other day and said, well, you only have to look as far as Fiji rugby to see what is what people are capable mm. of with the the drive without fancy equipment so it's not so much that i think it's just building some some systems in the background around training and you know if that means we're doing strength and conditioning over over zoom while we're getting that all sorted so be it but again that that's what jeremy is worrying about now is he's sitting in his hotel room in, in paradise looking out and for me it's going to be really putting those systems to support him but to also support all the other the great divisions there with the development team social uh, impact uh, marketing you know there's, there's so many good things happening there so i'm just i can't wait to get there and really just help them really because i think that's where i see my job is really just enabling um, and able to augment and really grow uh, the efforts that are, that are already there at the moment yeah, Vanuatu is one of those great sort of fan favorite teams that everybody really likes to get on board with. Um, I, I know, and you know, especially as as an Australian, you know, the the Pacific connection. I think everyone has you know at least met a few Vanuatu residents in their time, and and they're very popular in Australia. So I, I guess I'm sort of trying to live vicariously through you here because I, I, this is a dream <laughs> appointment. <laughs> but aren't we all? I'm thinking back to your time in in Hong Kong, where you were you know very big on on the community engagement with the cricket scene there, and obviously you're you're thinking along similar lines. I, I'm just looking. You know, you look at the map of Vanuatu. There's dozens of islands, hundreds of islands. Yeah, hundreds of islands. You know, how how are you going to get cricket out mm. to all of the you know little outposts? Oh, it's an interesting juxtaposition. You know, look at Hong Kong and the struggles we had there. Lack of cricket facilities, lack of acceptance, or at least well, even knowledge. I'd say the game within the community and within a community that wasn't necessarily big about sport and very much not so about team sport. Yep, infiltration of American sport there with with basketball and I guess. English Premier League as well but with Vanuatu where playing sport is not the issue again it's very athletic society in terms of the, the soccer that's played and much more active in general you know you, you don't have too many kids being told no don't go and play sport I want you to go learn the piano or you should be working working in your maths to go to university you know which was literal problems that we saw in, in Hong Kong trying to get local kids sort of involved in, in, in team sport but you're right about the, the, the locations and there are some islands within Vanuatu that there is no other communication there is no there's no telephones you know getting contact out there and already we 
we're, we're employing, I'll say we, okay, I'll, I'll speak in the, uh, you know, it's going to be a lot easier than, than say they, uh, employing and training people to be to be in as many places as possible. So it's not so much, or, or at least trying to convert people to wanting to be involved in sport. It's really having, developing programs that is helping grow the leaders of tomorrow within Vanuatu that fits within the communities that is teaching key core skills that actually has them having fun learning and then and then coming through those programs and being cricketers and being part of the part of the family really so it's it sounds easy if you say it quickly um <laughs> but it's all as always with with associate cricket or any cricket you know it's it's how you pay for these things as well <laughs> and being able to pay and having a sustainable system and that's why it's so important to be building deep long-term partnerships that mean that programs aren't going to be at the whim of where Vanuatu is on the on the scorecard or indeed or where the men's or women's teams are in are in their their events but you, you're right it's it's interesting when I kind of look at the challenges of two the two places where some are, couldn't be more different but still some are quite similar it would have been really poetic had Hong Kong and Vanuatu been in the same challenge league group mm. unfortunately not to be, but I do find it fascinating. And I think many people in the full member world would perhaps just put a lot of these these countries in the same sort of basket and, and say that all the problems that apply to these countries are universal. Some of them are, but you point out that Hong Kong and, and Vanuatu just geographically makes are completely different in terms of galvanizing how you put together teams, put together programs in terms of participation. So it, it is fascinating just listening to, to the goals and, and you haven't obviously set foot in, in the countries yet, but you can tell the mind's already ticking. We saw the Vanuatu T10 blast. I think the final at last count had something like 600,000 viewers. Mm. So they did the, you know, the best they could in, in kind of making the most of the situation the world was in. But you also point out that that's kind of a double-edged sword because if everyone else is in COVID problems, it's very hard to get equipment and stuff like that into the country. So it's a case of, of doing what you can do with the with the resources you already have. Um, and yeah, 40 employees. I think my eyebrows are raised when you, when you first told me that myself, just thinking, well, that's incredible. Not many associate members can boast that many, but you are able to, to have, you know, numbers on the ground where, where you need it most. Uh, and then just looking to your future, you said, you know, halfway through next month is roughly your timeline of, of getting there. What, what's the case with, with flights at the moment getting out there? There's repatriation flights and I'm, I'm guessing visas and, and other issues in the times that we live in make it quite difficult for everything to be done smoothly and quickly. Well, without getting too bogged down the logistics, I'll go get my, my visa approved over over there first. That's all being looked after me there. And once that's done, I need to apply from Australia for my border pass to, to leave the country. Um, and as you said, yeah, there are repatriation flights every two weeks out of Australia, thankfully out of Brisbane in, into Port Vila. So that's taking citizens and residents each way. Um, I think there are flights also out of New Zealand, maybe Fiji and... New Caledonia as well. So that's taking people and also cargo as well because I think in the past tourist flights going into Vanuatu were used as, as cargo flights as well but no you know the border's shut it's a hard border closing so there are no no tourists going in so I think those planes have been very useful to be getting things in into the country as well so with any luck I'll be there I think there's there's flights on the we get really exact on the 10th and the 24th of April and I'm I'm hoping it'll be the earlier one. But, you know, if not, so be it. It's just an, an, an extra two weeks for the rest of my life to, to get over there to paradise. So, <laughs> you know, control the controllables, as they say. 
Uh, Joe Dawes quote. Yes, you could probably formulate some of your ideas uh, in your Brisbane apartment anyway. Well, you know, there is a bit of cricket chat that goes in here, isn't there? But uh, no, absolutely. Like, <laughs> what there, do you mean? Yeah, there, oh, there's already been meetings and like I said, talking to Jeremy and whatnot. But the the fun of, of working and moving across, I was thinking at one stage, it was going to be a lot longer with notice periods and whatnot. But thankfully, that's all all worked out to get over there a lot sooner than I, than I, th- I thought. So you bring over like a bag full of cricket balls while you're just on your on your flight. Uh, um, I've actually been thinking about well, my dad driving up from Sydney. You know, strange things that old people do. Um, driving up to <laughs> see me. He's, he's been saying that he wanted to come up here and see me the whole time that I've been back in Australia. Um, this is not a fun drive, let me say. <laughs> well, he's stopping at a few places on the on the way up, but I'm. He's actually taken photos as as everyone out there who has has flown the nest, and all of us that have left gear back at our parents' house. You know, yeah. whether <laughs> whether it's you know, in my case, it's cricket bats. Yeah, exactly, golf clubs. <laughs> or I've still got my complete Voltron set and Voltron Castle <laughs> from from the eighties still there. Some in their original wrappings. That'd be worth a few bucks now. No, I'd look at, it, it would be. Um, so thankfully, he, he hasn't asked me to take that. But I'm basically telling him to put, put in all my all my bats and all my gear that's there. It actually works quite well that he'll be able to ring it up. So you jest, but I'll, I will try and take a few things over. But, um, well, you know, if anyone wants to, to send things over with me, then, uh, you know, <laughs> within Australia, in contact, and I'm sure it'll be, it'll be well used. But there's some, some childhood bats in there that um, I'll take with me. But, uh, yeah, like, like we said, it's just a matter of... Being as innovative as you can at the moment. The Cutler Care package, uh, leaving in early April. Get on board. It's about 127 kilos at the moment of Cutler Care package. Yeah, those luggage pricings are going to be astronomical. (laughs) In all seriousness, though, it's fantastic, I think, for everyone involved that that Tim is back in uh, a cricketing role in the associate world. I, I, I can't say Hong Kong have exactly gone from strength to strength since you left and looking I think people were just kind of begging for your input we were lucky to get it here at Emerging Cricket and we still will uh, we'll be under his uh, authority at Emerging Cricket too no doubt uh, <laughs> even during this tenure as well so uh, looking forward to the future we, we've seen him move away from the corporate and insurance games and back into cricket which is only better for the game so fantastic appointment in my opinion just on that just it just occurred to me did, was your you know your experience in the corporate world you know attracting sponsors that kind of stuff was that sort of part of the reason you you thought you had a good chance at, at getting this job well this job and i i guess the first move from insurance the first time geez you think you escape you always end back end up back there <laughs> um yeah relationship you know development and, and, and management yes but it's, it's, it's more around structures and processes and strategy that really I think helped me that came from a sort of a non-sporting background, but more of a business background. You know, my job before Hong Kong was akin to like a business owner, except I was working for someone else and, and someone else was paying for it, but building a business from more or less from scratch and kind of hiring and, and putting in processes and whatnot. And that really helped. But that too, in terms of searching out and nurturing potential partnerships, definitely part of my, my life now. But it's a lot easier when you're talking about something that uh, you can be passionate about. As, mu- as great as insurance is and as, as important as it <laughs> sort of underpins trade in so much of we t- that we do, these are going to be a, a lot easier conversations. But 
in saying that it's still it's still not easy you know you think well you, you don't need to read too much to see how sponsorship dollars have have reduced over the years and it's not just a matter of you know finding a, a ceo somewhere that loves cricket who's happy to to write a big check anymore it's it's really about aligning the assets that you have as a as a as a cricket entity i mean your programs your teams your tournaments that that align with your your partner's goals as well so everything you come out as a is a win-win really and that's from it could be a little development program or you could be you could be selling the the uh, top line sponsorship to a international tournament so it's always just about asking questions really and 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 knowing what suits your partner um, rather than just going there assuming you know what people want i think that's very, very it sounds like tim cutler lesson land now sorry sorry everyone um i'm just I, I'm, I'm being into i'm feel i'm being interviewed again but i know that, that that's the key it's about knowing what suits your partner really and teasing out what they're looking to achieve and what they want from a partner and like i said so you come out of it as a as a win-win and that's and that that's it really it's 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 i'm gonna say it's simple but it's as simple as that uh and, and but it's all, also you understanding your strategy as well it's once you can articulate your strategy and go out there and talk about who you are and what you represent that's that's a lot a lot easy, easier and, and i know the vca going through a strategy process at the moment and that'll be perfect timing for for when i land and for that process to to come to an end and then that would just be another stepping stone in the future of the game there. Looking forward to the new heights that Vanuatu will scale in the future under Cutler. And for all the news regarding Vanuatu cricket, I don't think we need to look very far to find that, thankfully. <laughs> uh, <laughs> shall we move on to some other news going on in the emerging game this week, gentlemen? Yes, let's. <laughs> some rough news. Well, some, I suppose, negative news coming out from the ICC uh, Mohammed Naveed and, and Shaiman Anwar from the United Arab Emirates have been banned from all cricket for eight years, each after the ICC Anti-Corruption Tribunal found them guilty of breaching the ICC Anti-Corruption Code. Uh, a number of offences for both of them, and I, I don't really need to, to read them out to you, gents. They go back to the ICC Men's T20 World Cup qualifier. Some of them applied to the T10 League in 2019 as well. We talk about it a lot here. Uh, unfortunately, it is a scourge on the game. And in the UAE, they've been victims of it, I suppose. Um, talking about, you know, Emirates Cricket Board and, and everyone innocent there. But unfortunately, we, we've seen a few bad eggs uh, in that part of the world. They have been stamped out. Thankfully, from a national team point of view, UAE seem to be going okay. Finding young players coming through and, and doing the right thing. But... Tim, to, to look at this again, it, it it's something that will continually be stamped out. People have been found out. Um, and yeah, if you, if you do the wrong thing, you will get caught. Well, I think as the release from the ICC said, you know, as we record this, it, it has just come out. I think Alex Marshall made a point of saying that these are two senior players, uh, one captain, opening bowler, one opening opening batter. They knew full well what they were getting themselves into. They've been forewarned and gone through countless education sessions about this. So, as you said, look, no need to read through anything. But you know the the interviews that they they printed when they said they'd been found guilty were, were pretty pretty damning. Despite at least one of them protesting innocence on on social media or himself and via shadow accounts look it, unfortunately i've been through this before with with, with hong kong and uh, it's just heart-wrenching for the game the people around the the game in the uae trying to to grow its profile you know the 
Emirates Cricket put out a statement of about four lines straight afterwards saying they acknowledge it and they support the, the fight against corruption in the game and they'll be making no, no further comments. So hopefully they're able to draw a line out under that and move forward. Of course, I think there's a, a couple of players still charged but not yet have gone through a tribunal process. I think one or two that were, were banned around the same time. But, you know, don't forget that we lost lost a coach of the UAE at that same time. Dougie Brown was, was let go not long after that, um, sent a lot of change. But as you said, they, they've been looking good on the field and they've been doing better in the uh, World Cup League 2 than we probably thought they, they would. So it's given a chance to some of the younger players coming through that we saw shine the under nine World Cup. So you know it's going to be sooner than expected for, for the kids coming through. But there's a lot of talent there. Then, of course, over in the, in the women's side as well, who I think are probably ones to watch coming out of the Asia region over the next couple of years. Yeah, it's it's disappointing. You know, I, I remember being at the 2015 World Cup when Anwar scored a century against Ireland. It was it was a great innings, and you know he's really uh, exciting player to watch. So it is always sad when you know when people like that end up being corrupt. But good riddance, I guess. Like you, this this needs to be stamped out of the game. And looking at the timing, he was trying to apparently allegedly you know corrupt his teammates whilst they were attempting to qualify for a major world event. That's terrible behavior. And the the fact that so many players were involved is just yeah, it's it's so frustrating that you know there's all these people involved in in the game and and trying to spread it and trying to you know get a, a cricket scene going and and then these people come in and and just sell them out for for their own benefit you know it's 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 so frustrating and I know that happened to you Tim and and you know you you yeah it was a struggle too but it's yeah and and it, it just it's so poisonous for the rest of the game as well because. You know, then whenever something strange happens, you know, you you start thinking, well, oh, was was some money changing hands, and and that's toxic, and especially for associate cricket, which is is struggling for you know recognition, and it's hard to you know judge these sort of situations coming from a you know relatively uh, well off country and and background and stuff, but I I just I wish these people would would think about the big picture rather than their own finances. Hey, you guys spoke to Steve Richardson last year in a great chat about all of this in terms of anti-corruption and there is adequate protection if you are to be approached as a player or an official and you can turn to the ICC and say look this is something that's that's happened to me I've had x knock on my door x message me on whatsapp whatever the the protection and and the processes are there for for people who uh, want to protect themselves from from anything ongoing like this so it's it is disastrous when when you hear people you know fall into the into the traps and and take the bait take a, a bribe or fail to report on, on something like this but you know as we say time and time again you will be found and you will be thrown out of the game pretty quickly after after doing so so look again we, we can we can harp on about it as, as much as we want UAE have moved on uh, and as you said Tim it looks like the ECB have, have, have drawn a line in the sand in, in regards to this and, and hopefully that's the end of the matter and the end of corruption in that part of the world but staying in a in a relatively similar geographical area and talking about the world's governing body we have seen some news reports come through uh, from multiple sources Times of India ESPN Quick Info just to name a couple Manu Sawney the ICC chief executive has been asked to go on leave after adverse findings of his management style emerged in an internal culture review there's a lot going on here gents and a lot of it is quite Subjective. We haven't had any word from the ICC themselves in regards to this, but 
you know, in the space of a, of a couple of weeks, potentially days time, we could see a lot of things shuffling around, a lot of people shuffling around in the International Career Council, and we could see great change on the game in terms of the leadership of it, Tim. Yeah, I think I know all too well what it's like to be a CEO. It's a lonely position in a lot of ways in that you're seen as a representative of the, of the board and, a, and, a, and an instrument of the board and, a, and its strategy to staff. Um, and then also you're the a lot of the time the only connection between the board and the staff. So I don't want to try and read too much into this, only that, you know, there's been a lot of noise around the ICC and the last couple of years, and there's been a lot of movements. You only have to see that the press releases for this to, to, to then happen. You know, we had heard about PwC coming and doing a, a review of everything, I think not long after Greg Barclay came in as, as chairman. He, the board com- commissioned that report, and uh, look, I think that was only only fair at the time. You know, I think when when Barkley took over, despite the fact he was it was up against Imran Khawaja from from Singapore, there was a, a lot of tension within the organisation around around fixtures, around funding, really around the the future of, of the game. You know, there'd been certain things um, proposed and a lot of disagreement at, at a board level. But I think a lot of that negativity perhaps had flowed down into the staff as well. You know, we talk about how great the development team are um, that we see dealing dealing with growing the game out out in the associates. But there's a there's a bigger bigger ICC out there in terms of running events and you know everything else that comes with it, the, the laws and, and and umpires and the commercial side and then the, the the management of of that all as well. So look, I can only hope that whatever happens, you don't end up in a situation where you lose all your good people and you're having to rebuild from scratch. You know, I've worked at enough companies. Um, when there hasn't been a great culture and, and you lose a lot, a lot of good people and then it's it's really hard to come back from there. So I just hope that they're able to, to get to the root of any problem, which it sounds like um, they're working hard to do that and they can build back from there because, you know, I know there are different perspectives on it, but if cricket is indeed the second most popular sport in the world, we know it's the second best sport in terms of funding its development, um, only behind behind football, but still ahead of rugby and, and basketball, etc. So, you know, it deserves a world-class administration and a world-class board supporting its growth. Yeah, you talked about the... Um you know, the rumblings coming out of the ICC and, uh, you know, obviously we don't want to get into unsubstantiated rumours, but just looking at the staff who've left over the last little while, you know, there's been a lot of senior people leaving the organisation, which doesn't look good. And, you know, you, you look at the, um, you know, what's happening with Sony here, you know, he's, according to the Crick Info reporting, he's been asked to go on leave. Um, sort of in in a sort of a, a temporary capacity as as they go through the review. That happened. A very similar situation happened during his time with with Sports Hub in Singapore. You know, another company there with again similar sort of um, complaints about work culture and and various other very sort of similar issues. And and so I don't know. I mean, that to me looks like a, a bit of a red flag. You know, if you if you're hiring someone that's um, had that history. But you know, looking at the broader picture, I, I think there's more to it than just uh, you know the work environment. I think it's quite possibly sort of broader um, you know ICC politics. You you look at what Sony was pushing um, at you know from the top. He was a big fan of extra tournaments that the ICC wanted to run, as well as the the independent bidding process for hosting events and and 
those two policies, I guess you could call it, are, according to various reports, uh, under discussion between you know, Big Three uh, and, and I think New Zealand as well uh, are both. Uh, so those countries are pushing against the independent uh, bidding process and, and the extra tournaments. Um, so I think quite possibly, you know, Sony's support for that has, has made him some enemies within the, the ICC board, which might have some bearing on, on what's going on here. So, you know, I, I don't want to be commenting on you know what he did or didn't do, but looking at the Champions Cup, I think it was called, the planned uh, six-team event and, and the, the bidding process, you know, I, I'm not going to miss... Or I'm not too cut up about <laughs> a, a, a sort of a new champions trophy uh, being put in the bin uh, because I, I don't think that would have really added anything to the international calendar. But I am I'm pretty disappointed about the ICC supposedly uh, you know reconsidering the idea of, of having a, a, an independent bidding process where countries like the USA or, or, or other associate nations could put in a bid to, to host an event and, and that would have been great for cricket's development. That seems a bit less likely now if, if it's all going to be sort of done internally in, in, you know, in the back rooms of the ICC. It will be an interesting few days uh, to a couple of weeks, perhaps, before we hear a little bit more about this. In the meantime, Jeff Allardyce, ICC's general manager, uh, has taken charge as acting CEO. Just picking up on what you said there, Nick, about the Champions Cups no longer running, and yeah, I think we can all safely say that that's a good thing. We've also seen an announcement from the ICC in regards to a revised schedule for ICC women's events from 2024 to 2031. The proposal was tabled in February. Um, we all saw that. And Tim, you actually broke the, the the story on emerging cricket. And the majority of the increase has actually come from replacing the two 16 T20 champions cups that they were going to have with 10 and 12 team T20 World Cup. Uh, respectively on each of those so I mean so far we could we could probably agree that yeah those champions those champions cups weren't taking us anywhere and we have seen a a better revised prospective schedule over the next well from 2024 to 2031. Yeah you said February that was February a year ago when that original proposal came out so yeah sorry i don't count 2020 as a year (laughs) (laughs) well that's what i mean that the fact has been out there for that long i've got to say i was pretty frustrated when i saw that come out especially on the women's side we just well we're about to have a t20 world cup with thailand being amazing and then out comes a a schedule for having a third more women's events but half as many tournaments that had more than eight teams in them it made no sense to me whatsoever so I think Tom Grunshaw as well has sort of tweeted, probably quote tweeted that story saying this is good, but it doesn't go far enough. You know, why can't women's T20 World Cups go to 12 teams or 14 or 16 teams now? And I think it's a, probably a fair question, honestly. Um, I guess the, the article that you mentioned itself is more reacting to the positive change that this was because it's only going to have 60 teams involved or 60 slots in those events over that period from 24 to 31. And now there are 76 and and more events with, uh, with more than eight teams, which is great for the likes of Thailand. But like we know... Um, Ireland, Scotland, um, the Namibia and beyond uh, that are looking to, to make debuts at, at world events and especially for the likes of Scotland and the Netherlands who are talking about wanting to be full members, you know, performance in women's global events are part of the performance criteria for that as well. So we can only hope that in all this chatter around global events that they're also talking about increasing 
the size of the men's 50 over World Cups and also locking in those T20 World Cups every two years. But one thing was a little deafening in its in its silence in that there was no mention or any slot for the Olympics in 2028 in that, in that schedule. Mm. When you think if they were under the impression that there was going to be an event of that size that you may not have a global ICC event. And I'm, look, I'm not reading too much into it because I'm sure you'd say if we find out this year that the cricket's going to be in LA in 28, um, then we can kind of sit back and, and shift the events that year out. But um, I don't know, it's just been a little bit a little bit quieter on that at the moment. But the, the positive news on that is that it sounds like Brisbane, just right time for me to move away, uh, <laughs> is, is a more or less a shoe-in for 2032. And I know everyone, that's that's 11, that's 11 years away. But, you know, that would have happened. Uh, cricket Australia has already said that they'll be pushing hard for, for cricket to be in there. But wouldn't that even be better if that was the second Olympics with cricket being in there and it becomes a, a permanent fixture? Uh, I think we would have heard a little bit more about Olympics aspirations if they were going to launch them for 2028. We're not far away from hopefully still a Tokyo Olympics in 2021. We're not too sure what's happening there, but it's not cricket's problem. So I don't really need to talk about it, but it doesn't look as if there's been a whole lot of chat in the upper echelons of the game or the game's um, governance, so I'm losing hope in all of that. But as you said, Tim, 2032 could be the, the perfect opportunity for, for cricket to organise itself for an Olympic Games. And just as a public service announcement, no one cares about Champions Trophies slash Champions Cup in that format. No one cares. I mean, <laughs> uh, can you think of a single Champions Trophy match and how it went? Just one, any of them. I think Australia won it once, and honestly, I'd... It barely made the news. The only thing I remember from the game is the players getting the bloke who presented them with a trophy to get off the stage so they could celebrate. That's the only (laughs) thing I remember about any Champions trophies that have been broadcast, shown, played around the world. That would be a perfect opportunity to have a more inclusive event. An ICC knockout, something similar to that with 16, 32 teams. who, Who knows? But the new schedule, the revised schedule, is definitely better than what was previously given to us. But yeah, people are more than rightly critiquing that and saying, look, things could be even better than this. It's just a case of of us getting a better deal than what we were originally being given. Yeah, and and I mean, I, I, I agree. Like, <laughs> I think the Champions Trophy is... Uh, I mean, I, I actually didn't hate it as a, as a tournament, honestly. I, I think it was... Um it was short and snappy and, and, you know, it wasn't too bad. It was basically everything the 10-team uh, World Cup should be but isn't. But, that you know, we can yeah. <laughs> we can leave that for, for another time. Um, but, yeah, no, I, I think, you know, looking at the, the women's side of things and, you know, they made a big fanfare about expanding it and, yes, it, it was an expansion. But I, I guess, you know, I don't know. I mean, incremental change is, is good and, and worth holding on to, but we're idealists on this podcast and you know Andrew Nixon came up with a great stat which was that in 2029 the women's ODI World Cup will still have fewer teams than it had in 1997 um so you know is it really expansion or I I don't know and and the 10 team all play all uh, format that they've that they've uh, kept for the women's events you know it's a terrible format in the men's game I can't see it being any less terrible in the women's game so I don't really understand why they're they're persisting with it. So yes, I mean having having more teams involved in the pathway events is fantastic, but yeah, you just wish they would be a bit more ambitious with you know the number of slots that are going to be available for for the women's main events. 
Is cricket the only sport where its flagship global tournament is getting smaller? Is it the only sport? It has to be. I believe so. I think uh, our friend Andrew Leonard may have done a couple of gifs mm. uh, oh, about, right. about three, three years ago comparing rugby, basketball, kabaddi. Yeah, uh, even kabaddi has more. Uh, amongst a, and it's, I'm, not, I'm not being flippant here, but yes, it was the only, only sport going backwards. So there's that saying that if you stay still, you go backwards. Cricket is going backwards and going, going backwards. backwards. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's it's a very odd one. And to explain it to people outside the game, it's so befuddling. It's so hard to explain to to people. But look, we're in an echo chamber here, um, and I'm preaching to you guys <laughs> and our very loyal listenership here at the Emerge Cricket Podcast things that they already know and already want. So I'm not going to you know jump on it. Uh, any more than I already have. Let's move on, lads. And uh, looking to North America, and and Nick, I'm looking at you. Uh, some more North American cricket. The Audi Cup is back. Last played in 2017, which was won by the USA. Of course, it's the oldest international fixture in any sport. Uh, one of the best pieces of trivia you can <laughs> find around the, the the quizzing traps. But what year was it, Bez? Oh, it was 144. Four years ago, I think. Or was it 1844? 1844. Oh, well done. It was 1844. I knew the 44. You got the 44 in there, yes. It's amazing to think what, what could have been in that part of the world with international cricket. But again, we digress and we haven't got Andrew Nixon on the show to talk <laughs> us all through that. But Nick, it is a return for the Audi Cup. Three-year absence. It will be still dependent on the regulations that are affecting our world, but they have been put in a spot straight after the T20 Men's World Cup qualifier, and they are three 50-over matches, which will be a good springboard for Canada's Challenge League aspirations and the United States Cricket World Cup League 2 aspirations. Canada desperate to win the trophy back, but neither team have played international cricket in a while. It'll be uh, a very intriguing uh, series to watch. Yeah, obviously, I'm uh, I'm very <laughs> very excited about this. <laughs> it's... um. You know, I think it's it's the kind of thing that more countries should be doing, and especially these two countries. You know, the, the rivalry, as you say, goes back to 1844. That's that's the kind of history that is you know priceless in terms of international sporting rivalries, and and I think really think they should be making more of it, and and it should be something that um, generates a bit more excitement within the you know the cricket scene in both sides of the 49th parallel. I, I think I like the timing of it. I like that they've um you know they've put it between the uh, the T20 qualifiers and the um the the challenge league which are both being hosted in Canada so it's it's good preparation i like that the i mean looking at all this cricket it's um you know it's <laughs> i'm i'm getting sort of a, a bit envious of people who are over there and and able to watch it you know covid notwithstanding and but looking at the schedule at the moment it, it's the sort of thing that i would um i'd i'd be getting a plane ticket to to get over to north america for you know you've got so much north american cricket going on but uh yes i, I think Looking at recent form, I mean, it's hard to tell with neither team playing for a year, but I think the Canadians are probably, I mean, this is just my perennial optimism for Canada, but I think they're probably favourites, you know. The, the, I, I think their team is a bit more settled than the US, and the US have been um, playing around with a lot of uh, you know, recently qualified people, and, and um, you know, they've, they've had a lot of training camps and, and whatnot with some, some new names coming in and shuffling around. So I think the Canadians are a bit more settled, and, and they'll, be, uh, they'll be hard to beat. Is this something, a trophy that they should be playing for even when they play each other at major global events? Mm, good shout. Yeah, I, I don't know. I know some some trophies do that. The Bledisloe Cup and, mm. and um, I think 
possibly even the Chapel Hadley did it a couple of times, the Australian New Zealand cricket one. But just something that popped into my head because it would have been quite interesting to see them uh, hand over the trophy uh, to in Namibia. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <Hadley. laughs> But the thing, I understand the the appeal of that, but I also don't know. I, I like that it's its own thing and that it's a it's a special side. Mm. You know, it's 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 separate because you know, thinking to that Namibia match, you know, Canada won the match convincingly, but they it felt like a loss because they missed out on ODI status. And so you imagine, <laughs> I know that's where I was going. That's where I was getting at. Hanging the trophy over. <laughs> imagine that, after yeah, after yeah. the USA bench had cheered when they went past the uh, net run rate score. So they didn't wouldn't really it. feel like winning the prestigious no. trophy. Well, I just so, thought yeah. of, that's that was the only the vision that came into my mind of like here's your trophy, but <laughs> evil but Tim Cutler in the in the distance. Well, that was still some of the most bizarre cricket I think I've ever seen in my life. But um, yeah, that's. That's what net run rates do. What what do, you, what do you reckon, guys? Like, I know they've talked about it being well, it's fifty over cricket. What's your perfect tournament structure? Uh, that's a great question. Mm. Uh, I think fifty overs is a good, I suppose, a good compromise between any idea of having longer format cricket and the the randomness, if if that's a word, of of T Twenty cricket and the idea of how you know one player could potentially run away with it. Yeah, it's an interesting one. I wouldn't mind a hybrid. T20 series into a 50 over series into maybe one first class match or something along those lines, a four day match. I mean, that's, that's very eye pie in the sky kind of mentality, but I, I don't mind the, the idea of a, a three match 50 over format. I, I've got to say, I'd, I'd probably have the USA as, as favorites, but you can never really tell with that USA team. I think that the qualifiers will probably give us a better indicator of, of who's, who's where. Yeah. I think, Obviously, the history of it being a, a multi-day event for you know <laughs> for over a century, it was it was a multi-day uh, a competition, and you know even you know back in the day when the very first one happened, there was you know tens of thousands of people turning up, and um, you know it was it was a big deal. So I very much. I'm a, a a big believer in the long format. Really, I think that's a first. That's the first you've mentioned of that. <laughs> <laughs> well, you, you can't help but growing up in, in Australia. Sorry, I, you, you're in the middle of a thought there as well. Carry on. No, but I, I like what they do with the women's ashes, where they have the different formats, and you get points across mm. you know, across the whole series, and and you win the the series based on your total points rather than um, you know having having different series for different formats. So. Um, yes, yeah, something along those lines, like you said, Bez, with um, you know a few different formats and and points across all of them, I think would would work pretty well. Yeah, I was thinking the same thing. Um, Women's Ashes is what we used with the Scotland Hong Kong series, the Braidwood Cup when mm. they were in Hong Kong for the I Cup and the World Cricket League Championship matches. So across the first class ODI and a couple of T20Is, you work the points out that way, and I think that you know you get your kind of all format team there you know you might be great at the shorter format but if someone does better in, in three days and you wait it you wait it that way so could be very cool but i guess the problem these days is finding slots where both teams are available for bilateral cricket because there's going to be so much contextual tournament cricket um and a little thing called major league cricket in there as well in in the coming years to fit hi i'm kevin o'brien you're listening to the emerging cricket podcast A couple of news bits and pieces to wrap up this week's show. First, to Kuwait, who have announced national contracts for 20 men's players for the second straight year. $70,000 is to be shared amongst the group, with the payments complementing other match fees earned through playing international fixtures. Kuwait will line up for the T20 Asia Cup qualifiers and will attempt to qualify for the 2022 T20 World Cup through the Asian Western Sub-Regional Qualifier in October. 
Germany will host France in a five-match women's T20 international series in July as preparation for the Women's T20 World Cup Europe qualifier in August. The matches at the new National Performance Centre in Krefeld will be the first official T20i fixtures between the two sides. And finally, Fairbreak Global have announced an Invitational Women's Cricket Tournament to be staged in Hong Kong in May 2022. The ICC-sanctioned tournament is the first privately funded tournament of its type and will feature six teams with players recruited from both full and associate member nations. That's everything in the Emerging Game this week. For more, log on to EmergingCricket.com. But for now, on behalf of Tim Cutler, Nick Skinner and myself, Daniel Beswick, see you next week.